Uh, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. I feel very, um, like we have high stress levels after that game. I was so proud looking around it, us all sitting there, like in community. It, uh, I just felt so proud of our church, watching us all, and there was no fist fights, so that was good. <laughs> um, so we're going to get into it. If my clicker, yes. We are in week two of our topic, which is a walk through the book of Ephesians. And today, I'm taking us through chapter two. Uh, But first, I want to give a little bit of a recap about uh, what we looked at last week and kind of a bit of an overview, because Dre gave us a great context to Ephesians, and he walked us through chapter one as well. So, we know that Ephesians is a letter consisting of six chapters, and our chapters one to three, there are kind of theological, doctrine-based chapters. Our chapters four to six, there are more practical hands-on chapters, and we know Ephesians was written by Paul, who was under house arrest at the time he was writing this, and he was writing to the people of Ephesus. Ephesus no longer exists, but it was in a region of where we consider Turkey to be today, and Ephesus was a wealthy city. It was a melting pot of culture and religion, and it was a hub of commerce and trade. And in chapter 1, we learnt that this was kind of the build-up that was going to take us into the following chapters, but we learnt that Jay focused on how we are chosen, we are adopted, and we are redeemed. Cool. So, chapter 2. I'm going to be honest, I feel like I'm calling this chapter a crunchy chapter, because it is a bit to chew through, and it can be a little bit uncomfortable to digest some of it. And full disclosure, I'm not a theologian by any means. I have no desire to be so. But thankfully, Paul does an awesome job at really taking us on this journey of what the Christian life or Christian walk looks like. And in this chapter, he takes us through the past, the present, and the future of what it means to be a Christian. And his goal in this chapter is to say, okay, this is who God is, and this is who we are in him. And this chapter is awesome. If you have any of those really foundational questions you want answered, like what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be born again? Why are we saved? What is the process of our salvation? All of those really meaty questions are answered in chapter two. So first off, I'm going, oh also I'm just looking at verses one to ten today. Partly because verses 11 to 22 kind of go into chapter 3 and the wonderful Mike Robb is going to be taking us through that and I don't want to steal any of his content. (laughs) Cool. So this is verses 1 to 3 we're going to look at first and they are challenging and I promise you it gets better after these verses. So, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins... You used to live in sin like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the command of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at the work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So... (laughs) There's no easing into this chapter. Straight away, Paul is like, once you were dead. 
And obviously, he's not talking about us physically being dead, literally being dead. What he's talking about here is spiritual death. He's saying that as humans, we are born into a world of sin, and we can't help but be spiritually dead. We inherited sin from the original sinners, Adam and Eve themselves. Genesis 2.17, God said to Adam, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And what do they do? They eat. And while they don't physically die, they still live out their lives on earth, they pass from a state of spiritual life into a state of spiritual death when they sin against God. And as a result, their physical death would eventually come. So spiritual death, Paul's saying, is a state we all inherit. And so he's like, great, you were dead because of your disobedience and your sin. So basically, we were dead disobedient sinners. And this is a good time to kind of remind us what sin actually kind of looks like. And sin is an act that goes against conduct or rule, and the true essence of sin is to fall short. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. Yes, many of us have different levels of morality and values, but no matter how high these may be, I think we can all acknowledge that we all fall short of being perfect people and living perfect lives. Right? I think we can all agree on that. So, we're spiritually dead. We're living in sin and we're disobedient. And then Paul says, well, that means you obey the devil. And I understand this verse sounds radical. I do. Because, well, I don't know about anyone else, but we, I would like to think that people who are obeying the devil are doing it very intentionally and very knowingly. But in most translations of this verse, the devil is referred to as the prince, the power of the air, which is a really strange term to use, but very kind of purposeful, and it helps to paint a picture for us. You know, society has great representations of, I guess, the devil over history. If we look at art, even, the history of art, classical art, the devil is painted as this kind of bestial, monstrous warrior creature strapped with weapons normally in battle. And then modern society gives us that real caricature of the devil with red pointy ears, a pitchfork and a forked tail. But in Genesis, when the serpent comes into the garden, he doesn't come with a sword, he doesn't come to battle, he comes with an idea. He comes with a lie that Eve believes so Paul saying the prince, the power of the air, is like highlighting this less obvious side to how the devil kind of works in the world. It can be as simple as spreading an idea, a lie, that spreads into the realm of culture, of tradition, of religion, of ideologies, and of attitudes. And there's this awesome speaker, if you ever get a chance to listen to him, he's got a great podcast, his name's John Mark Homer, and he said this, he said, the devil's best tool to use is deceitful ideas that play into our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. So let's put that into context of which Paul's writing this, because remember, context is key. 
Paul is writing to Ephesus. This is the melting pot of influence and of religion. And like Dre alluded to last week, he said it was diluting God's people. Diluting God's word is causing truth to be twisted, morphed with lies. And what Paul is trying to explain is he's saying, you are following the way of the world. You are not following God's way. Your influences are coming from the world, not of God or his will or his truth. So scripture is, to be fair, very black and white on this. It says basically there's two camps in the world. There is the camp that is alienated from camp, uh, from camp, alienated from God, therefore against God, or there is the camp that is for God. And there's no kind of neutral territory in this. It's one or the other. And Paul's like, well, we all start off inheriting spiritual death, sinners, and alienated from God. So we essentially start off in this place, all of us together. And in Matthew 12:30, Jesus said, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. Anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. And I'm mindful that these verses do make us a little bit uncomfortable, right? They are challenging to hear, but I think they are deliberately supposed to make us uncomfortable because only when we see this do we realize how gracious and how loving and how amazing God is in the verses that are to come. But first off, I just want to quickly go through verses 1 to 3 again because there's a key point in these verses that we have to acknowledge. Once you were dead, you used to live in sin. All of us used to live that way. By our nature, we were subject, right? Paul is talking in past tense. He's saying, you're a Christian. Uh -uh, That's not your present. That is your past. And it's like his little prelude to the fact that, okay, that's our past. Now I'm going to bring you into the present and talk about the present. But first off, okay, Say we all start in this state, how do we get out of it? If this is what we kind of inevitably are in to begin with, how do we, how do we move past this? And there is one way and one way only that you can get out of this state, and that's God. So let me put it like this. Say you were lying on an operating table, And you were dead, literally dead. There is nothing that you could do to revive yourself, to make yourself alive again. Any hope of revival is going to come from someone or something beyond yourself. Now, say a surgeon or a doctor comes along and they, you know, everyone knows that soap opera hospital scene where like the heart monitor's flatlining and people are running in and they're charging up the defibrillator and then they jolt the person to life and then the heart monitor beeps, people are weeping with joy, the person is miraculously alive. I have no idea if that's medically correct, but you, <laughs> you get my point. So my point is, is that we are all lying on that operating table, spiritually dead, and God is the surgeon, doctor, whoever, that comes along and revives us because we cannot do it by our own hand. We cannot do it by our own might. Right, that was the hard verses done. Let's get to the good ones. This is verse 4 to 8. But God... 
so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave his life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believe, and you can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Right, there are so many sermons out there, by the way, dedicated to just those first two words, but God. These verses are vital if we want to understand why God saves us. Straight off the bat, we know it's because he is rich in love and mercy, and it is unconditional. And our salvation is only possible because of God's love and mercy. And if there's any confusion about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be born again, the answer is right here from us. To be born again means to be spiritually revived, going from spiritual death into spiritual life. And it's like, it's like everything that was once black and white suddenly becomes colour. Because we're spiritually reborn. We change. That's exciting. And it's not just like a title change. It's not just like we go on Facebook and click our relationship status from single to in a relationship. It is a full spiritual awakening. One that shifts us from this world into the realm of God. That's what it means when it says, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms. God is not standing over us as that surgeon having just revived us, saying, great, you're saved, uh, here's your ticket to access heaven when you die, don't lose it, by the way, it is a one-way ticket. He's like, he's like, great, you're alive, oh boy, look what I have to show you. You have now have access to all my realm. You receive the power of God. And this sounds like the start of a really good superhero comic, but in this case, the power of God is peace and purpose and forgiveness and a future. And it's the same power that rose us from the dead, put us at the right hand of God with Christ, and put us in heavenly places, positionally, not literally, yet. So our spirit now, our spirit resides in God's realm and our body remains in the flesh. That's what it means when it says we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And our new spirit is going to produce positive changes. It's going to change the way we act, the way we feel. We're going to feel different about sinning. It's not going to be as rewarding as it once was. And when you do sin, you feel convicted. We want to know God better. We want to hear him better because being with God holds attraction. Suddenly being with God's people that you previously probably thought were weirdos holds attraction. And eternal life with God holds attraction. Things that mean nothing now mean something. And some of us may be thinking, okay, well, that's not really me yet. That's okay. We all move through this at different paces. Some of us are going to zoom through. Others are going to meander. 
But the problem arises in this is if, okay, if you're not moving or growing or you can't detect any positive changes after being spiritually reborn, that's when we need to go to God and people we trust and ask for advice around it. And I just want to be clear, because I feel like it's important to say this, that just because we are saved now does not make us saved saints. I think it was Pastor Skip Heisig, he said, we're not saved saints, we're saved sinners, because it's still impossible for us to reach the glory of God. It's still impossible for us to be perfect and live perfect lives. Just because we're saved is not going to make our lives perfect. If anyone thinks being a Christian means that you're now going to have a great and perfect life and nothing's going to go wrong, that is simply not true. So, now we're alive. This is great. We are alive. We're in God's domain. We're in his realm. We are in this world, but not of the world. And the reason we are alive is we are alive through Christ, through union with him and in faith. In other words, it's because Christ lives that we lived. It's because Christ was raised that we're raised. It's because Christ was glorified that we're glorified. It's like Jesus is the vehicle that carries us there, and God makes us alive and raises us and glorifies us. And I'm conscious, I'm really conscious for some people, myself so included in this, that this is a mind-warping concept to wrap our heads around. I have a million questions about this. Does anybody else do that when you... (laughs) I have a list of questions I want to ask when I get to heaven. I want to know what happened to Flight 370. I want to know what the deal is with the Bermuda Triangle and is the Loch Ness Monster real? But my point is, is that we are dealing with God-level concepts. We were dead, God raised us, we're alive through Christ, we're positionally in heaven, but our body's here. And you know what? I think it is okay. I think it is totally normal that our little human brains cannot fully comprehend the magnitude of what God has done for us. I don't think we're made to understand all of the God-level concepts. I think we have to learn to find comfort in the mystery of God because that is the whole element of faith, that even if we can't fully comprehend, we believe. For example, I always think this driving through the Littleton Tunnel. So I'm driving through and I'm like, literally someone just dug a hole under a hill and was like, yeah, you can drive in there. Or Auckland Harbour Bridge, they just construct this metal thing over a large body of water and they're like, yeah, hundreds of cars can drive across that at a time, it's fine. And clearly I'm not an engineer or an architect or any of those things and I don't know how these things were created. But I trust that the people who did build them, who did construct them, knew what they were doing. And it's just like God. I may not know all the ins and outs of these really God-level concepts, but I trust that God does, the creator of the world does. And this leads to the next point. So Paul is real clear in this chapter that faith is a result of God's grace. It is not the way we obtain God's grace. His grace must come before faith. 8 verse 8 says, God saved you by his grace when you believe and you can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. It's another bit of a kind of mind-bending thought, but I'll put it into perspective, right? Say, London. (laughs) Suppose I tell London, okay, meet me at my house tomorrow at 9 a.m. and I want to give you $100. 
and this is the condition for you to receive the gift. If you believe me, you're going to come to my house tomorrow, next day at 9 a.m., and I will give you the $100. Now, if you show up, have you earned the money? No, because the money is a free gift, right? I'm giving it to you. Yet your appearance, you turning up to my house, is vital in order for you to receive the gift, the $100. If you fail to show up, you don't receive the gift, and the blame for you not receiving it rests on you. Similarly, we have to respond to God in faith, right? God has the gift of salvation, and we can turn up and accept God's gift of salvation, and when we do, he will graciously grant it to you. And we receive salvation totally as a free gift, not as anything we have earned, not as anything we have a right to, but as a gift. And if we don't respond in obedience to God's word, if we don't turn up, you know what? Not receiving salvation actually rests totally upon us. So we are saved by the grace of God alone, and salvation is received by faith, not by our own doing. Salvation is not our church attendance, how much we tithe or give to charity, or how much of a respectable life we live. All those things are great in themselves, definitely, but you don't receive salvation through them. It is received by faith. Now, I was reading this, and I was like, that's amazing. Like, even though we were sinners, we were against you, you sought us out, you revived us, you made us living, and then you gave us access to all your power, you placed us in your realm, you sacrificed your son for us. But my brain's going, well, why? Why do it? Why bother? Why not just kind of start afresh? The answer is in our next few verses, and they're verses 9 to 10. It says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Yep, we know that. For we are God's masterpiece, and he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God's ultimate purpose in saving a chosen people for himself is to display his glorious grace for all and forever to see. Basically, he loves us so much that he wants to share the amazing things that he has planned for us forever. And while we live on earth, it is our job to point away from ourselves and to point others towards God to who we owe our salvation to. And I like this word here, masterpiece. A masterpiece is an accomplished, a work accomplished with extraordinary and outstanding skills. And the Bible doesn't say you are a masterpiece, which is quite a compliment in itself. It says you are God's masterpiece. That's like next level. You are the creator of the world's masterpiece. And I feel like some people think, okay, if you knew me or you knew my life, you would not call me a masterpiece. You know what? He did not make us and be like, well, there's a few little leftover personality traits from that person there. Chuck them in that person, they'll be fine. We were not his plan B, his second rate creation. There is absolutely no way that not one of us was made inferior, even the South African supporters. Um, <laughs> sorry. <Wow>. Okay. <laughs> Each one of us is a masterpiece, and all of us can be used by God. Yes, some of us may be a bit dusty, we may need a clean and a little restoration, but you know what? Even when the Mona Lisa gets dusty, it is no less a masterpiece. 
We are not made by mistake. We're made on purpose for a purpose. So when God saves you, he wants to see in your life good works. He wants you to be showing others what he has showed you. Grace, love, mercy. So in this chapter, Paul was really leading us towards this idea of purpose and purpose beyond salvation. And he is saying, you know, to do good works. It's our job to share our experience and reflect God's character to, to others through the good things he planned for us long ago. Now, we're getting there. As always, we want some practical application. We're like, that's great, but I want to know how I can apply this in my life. And I was thinking about this a lot, and I was like, there is the usual, you know, pray, read the Bible, listen to God, all very essential and important things. But I keep coming back to just simply adjusting our mindsets in terms of understanding our own value, God's love, and our purpose beyond salvation. And the picture that I had for this was, you know those little bunny ear aerials that used to get on the TV? They'll forever remind me of my grandparents adjusting them just before Coronation Street was on, getting it just right. Sometimes when you adjust the bunny ears, it's not because you aren't getting any signal through in the first place. It's just that a little tweak makes things a little bit clearer. And so I have this visual image to try and demonstrate how this chapter can teach us to adjust our mindsets. And, <laughs> of course, this is just my interpretation, so you can take it or leave it. I won't be offended. But here, in the middle, we have Earth. Earth, we're in now a physical world, and the gold is purely just a representation of God's realm that moves around us and within us if we have salvation. And this is just to remind me, or remind us, that all our blessings, they're going to come from God's realm. They come from there and I receive them there. It's in this realm that I'm praying to. I'm talking to God. This is the realm of the Holy Spirit. This is my permanent home and earth is my temporary home. All my commands are going to come from God's realm, right? All of my services are going to go to God's realm, all of my sacrifices that I make here on earth, I want to be for God's realm because I'm investing in my home. I'm investing in my future. Sure, I can invest in this world and there is nothing wrong investing in this world for the betterment of God's people and God's kingdom. But I have to know that if that's not my purpose when I'm investing in this world, it is fleeting. And at the end of the day, it will fade away into nothing. Presently, it's my job to give a glimpse of God's world that resides within us and around us to others. We want to use our time on earth to do what we can to show the light of God's kingdom and to better and further his kingdom for the future. And some of us may be acing this, and that's amazing, and I want to know your secrets. But this is a good reminder sometimes to just adjust our little bunny ears and remind ourselves that beyond salvation, what our role actually is. I know, I looked at this and I was like, i got work to do. So I'm just going to start wrapping it up here with a few truths that I re If you take nothing else away today, take these away. If you are to have true and saving faith, this is what we must know. 
We must know the truth about who God is, that he is our only reviver, our only chance of of revival. And if we ask of this, he will do it because he is rich in love and mercy. And we've got to know who we are, that we were spiritually dead sinners without a hope of revival unless we put our faith in God. And we have to know that this came about because Christ met that need. He paid the price for our sins so that like Christ we can be risen and our debt has been paid in full. And some of us, some of us here may be still on that operating table and that's okay. But just know that God is waiting over you like that surgeon, ready and willing to give you that jolt of revival. Some of us may be waking up and we may be looking around the world and wonder, smelling the roses, trying to wrap our heads around the magnitude of love that God has for us, exploring how this new faith looks like in our lives and how it's making positive changes. Some of us may be getting our masterpieces buffed up a little, getting a little restoration. And some of us, possibly most of us here, are doing the good work, right? We're obeying God. We're sharing glimpses of his realm in our everyday lives, sharing his light. And the exciting thing is if you're at that stage, it's actually not the end of the road because the hungrier we are, the more God is going to reveal to us. The more we lean into his spirit and into scripture, the more time we spend with God listening and praying, the more we learn of his nature and just how full of love and mercy and grace he is, and the better that we can reflect his character to others. Cool. I'm going to end on that.